So that was sitting zazen, right? <laughs> and um, famously, the founder of Japanese Soto Zen, uh, this guy, Duggan, um, was, well, so maybe a little background. So he was raised initially in the imperial court. He was related to, it's no, not really clear who, but um, some really important court official who was related to the emperor. And so they looked after him for a while and he was educated there and so on. And his father died and then, um, then his mom died and he, by that point he was sort of becoming an adolescent and probably getting harder and harder to manage and they weren't really sure what to do with him. So they sent him off to a monastery. And in particular, they sent him off to a, uh, to a Tendai monastery, which is I think still to this day, probably the, the largest um, Buddhist sect in Japan. Um, and I could be wrong about that, but it, they, in any case, they were they were unquestionably the largest largest Buddhist sect in the Japan of the 13th century, which is where um, where he, when he was living, and and so he went to this Tendai monastery, and I think it's pretty clear from his history that one he was really smart, and two he knew it, <laughs> and three he was kind of kind of entitled and arrogant. And so he he studied diligently at the Tendai Monastery, but he also, I think he kind of vexed his teachers, right? You know, he would he asked lots and lots of questions. And then after a while, the teachers kind of got sick of it. And they said, you know, there's this guy, is in there's a new, he's a he's a Tendai teacher, but he studied um he studied Zen in China. And we think you should go study with him. And this was like, he was like the, the first Zen master in China. He was a, it was a different sect than San Francisco Zen Center. He was in the Rinzai sect, but he you know, really kind of was the first, right? Um, and by this point, the, that guy was pretty old. So it's not totally clear whether Dogen ever actually studied with him, but he went and he studied with one of his successors, with his primary successor. Um, and After a while, the guy said, you know, we should go to, we should really go to China and study this stuff at the source. And so they went off to China and the, the, um, his teacher died while they were in China. And, and he kind of wandered around for a while and then finally settled at this monastery near what's now um, uh, Ningbo on the coast. And it's in this, little tiny sort of pocket-sized mountain range. Um, uh, and it's quite beautiful actually. And um, there was this guy there named um, uh, Tantong Wujing. Well, the, the monastery was called Tantong, but, um, uh, and Wujing was really a great teacher and kind of helped 
Dogen wake up and and then encouraged him to go back to Japan and kind of spread Zen in Japan. And so he did. He, among other things, he sent him with a bunch of weird injunctions like, don't ever look at large fish or bad art. And uh, and don't spend a lot of time listening to pigs and donkeys and, and stuff that you can either interpret as metaphorical or actually, you know, kind of, you know, actual instructions. But in any case, so he went back to Japan and he ran straight into a wall, right? Like nobody had the slightest in, in the Buddhist community in Japan had the slightest interest in in what he had to say about about Zen. And it was frustrating and difficult for him. And the, the more he um, he worked at it, the harder the the um, sort of Tendai establishment pushed back. And so after a while, he kind of got out of town and he was living in a in a in a country monastery, um, and he just—I think—he decided he needed to write a manifesto, and so he wrote this manifesto called "Everybody Should Be Sitting Zazen," um, and he, in it, he says this fascinating thing. Right? He says he—he he talks. He first talks about how. Um, how great it is and how it's the gate, it's the main gate and, and you should stop studying sutras and chanting and, and uh, offering incense and all this sort of ceremonial stuff. And, you know, so stop being an academic and stop being a, uh, uh, you know, stop ceremonial practice and just do Zazen. Right. And at one point he says something like, after kind of explaining how it works, he says, Note that this like isn't meditation proper, right? It's not like you're learning something or you're or you're trying to make something happen. He says it's the Dharma gate of, well, it's usually translated as repose and bliss or ease and joy, right? And you know, you read that the, the first you know, a thousand times you're, you sit Zazen and it really is like, what is he talking about, right? Like, I can remember that my, my experience of Zazen early on was uncomfortable and by turns frustrating and boring. And even when I kind of felt like I was getting somewhere with it, I um, it didn't last very long, and often led me into to really um, into really kind of bad spots. Like I remember once, this is actually after I'd been practicing for a while, but I was I was I was working with the breathing that they were just that we were just doing now, right? So and and so this was not just in a in a you know one hour sit or a or a half day sit or a one day sit. This was in a seven day intensive retreat, right? And I was working with this breathing. And so I was doing it pretty much all day. And so I, and so I would breathe out and pause. And then when my diaphragm, suppo supposedly when my diaphragm told me to breathe in, I'd breathe in and wait a little bit. And then, you know, and I, the, the, there's this 
sort of natural inclination to kind of slow down and to stretch the pauses out. And, and, um, and at the same time, I was, you know, the, the meals in, during the retreats are very formal, right? So you sit down and, and the, there's this elaborate ritual whereby the food is served and you're sitting, you're sitting at your seat. You've just turned around from sitting zazen, right? Sitting at your seat and there you have three bowls in front of you and people come put food in them and there's a bunch of bowing and chanting. And then you have about three and a half minutes to eat. And then somebody comes around to offer seconds and you have about four minutes to eat that and then you're done, right? And I took on this practice where I would, I would only eat the first, I would only request the first scoop of food from each bowl that was dropped in. And so sometimes, you know, like the server would like just barely nick a little bit of soup or something like that. And with the expectation that they were, they were going to you know, be able to put some more in, but I would, I would say, okay, stop there. So I usually, I was eating these really tiny amounts of food and I was doing this really sort of intense breathing. And after about five, well, maybe three days, my, everything just completely went kerfluey. Like I was, I was really starved and I was, I was getting increasingly anoxic. And I don't know if, if you've ever gotten yourself really anoxic. I, I once essentially drowned and I can tell you that when you when somebody manages to pump air back into your lungs after you've been not breathing underwater for a while, the main effect is after you wake up and you're briefly glad to be alive, it's tremendously depressing. It like completely messes with your with your mood and 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 your sort of mental framing of reality. And it was it took it took really like most of a day to come for me to kind of come back up to something like normal. And so I, I'd been kind of oxygen starving my brain for a few days and it was finally like, okay, we're going into some other mode. And I was just, it was like torture for almost the entire rest of the, of the, um, of the retreat. After a few days, I was, I was like, okay, clearly I just have to eat a lot and let myself breathe any way I want. And then slowly I recovered. And by the end it was okay. But you, but you know, so basically what I'm saying is that even when I thought I was getting it, um, it was really easy for me to drive myself into a, into a really terrible state, which is not at all like the Dharma gate of repose and bliss. Right. Um, and I even once asked, not at this retreat, but in another one, my teacher, um, some a question like um how is it that like sitting on what feels like a bed of nails you know making mistake after mistake after mistake is the dharma gate of repose and bliss and the truth is i don't even remember what his answer was but i think it was something like the the Buddha knows the many manifestations of mind. That's what he said. And, you know, so years later, I'm still trying to figure out what he meant. But in any case, so, so that was my experience with it. And, and I don't, you know, not everybody is the same, but I, I imagine that, that pretty much everyone would not have picked Dharma gate of repose and bliss as the way to describe sitting zazen. Or if they, if they do, they're, they're kind of unusual, right? So 
So it's worth asking in some ways what Dogen meant by that and what and how the the people of the day describe, you know, sitting Zazen to try and get at that, right? And so um so I've been dig- doing some digging around and here's what here's what I've come up with, right? Like there are two words in in um, Chinese, uh, classical Chinese, and I think modern Chinese, that that are used very regularly in a lot of different texts to talk about the mind, the minds of zazen, or the or and in fact talk about the 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 kind of process and feel of of human engagement with the mind, even when you're not sitting zazen, right and um, they're usually translated as the relative and the absolute, right? And and the reason why they're translated that way, I think, by most Western translators is that those terms align with this long-standing conversation in Western philosophy about about the truth value of things. It's like you can have a relative truth that's true under certain conditions and you can have an absolute truth that's true all the time, right? And that shows up in the Buddhist doctrine and philosophy as well, the the idea of that there's actually two truths, right? Um, and so usually when people refer to them and when they translate documents that contain them, they use the terms relative and absolute. And so it gives you this idea that it's sort of, they're sort of philosophical terms and that they apply to something about how the, about what truth you're actually seeing when you're experiencing the world, right? But that's not actually what they mean at all. And the two terms are, I'm gonna get the pronunciation of these dead wrong, so please forgive me, but one is pian or pian. Um, and the other one is something like shun, right? And what they mean is something way more like, um, well, pian is something like one-sided, distorted, leaning, crooked. Um, and there's even a, there's even a sort of uh, metaphor that's used in, the, in a lot of texts that talks about people who are in that state as like carpenters carrying a board on one shoulder. Like they're like wanging this thing around, and they can't—they can only see about half the picture, right? And uh, um, and so that's pian, right? Um, and 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 Jung is just has all this the opposite meanings, the opposite related meanings. So upright, um, straight, uh, you know, like etc right um not distorted um and so on and and so it's pretty clear that they're that they're not talking about truth value in these terms they're talking about the actual experience of sitting zaza right and and maybe of being a human right and and i think everybody has a feel for what these things mean right you you know like I was just thinking about it today, like the, like Pian, the crooked is kind of, is in some ways like contains all the prototype um, functions for, for example, addiction, 
right? So it it it's a, it it rests on top of all of our human capacities. So our ability for to plan, our ability to to both talk and to self narrate, our our um, our our ability um, to in imagining the future and also imagining and reimagining the past to generate like um, driving graspings and aversions and desires and and distastes and so on and so forth. It really it really it just really uses all of that stuff and it uses it in a way that's that's it's kind of one-sided and distorted and distorted in particular by the the notion that that this one is a separate self with with their own unique agendas and and needs and and those needs are and agendas are paramount and everything else is secondary and 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 a possible source of conflict right um So that sounds pretty bleak, but interestingly, it's it's where we spend a lot of time, right? Um, even when when even when we're not when it's when there's not active conflict going on, if you really watch your mind, you'll notice that we're that we're always kind of optimizing in a way, which is very very odd. And and um, and even when it's successful. There's this. There's a weird function of pian, which is that, um, as a mechanism, it works better when we're always uncomfortable. Right? So, um, because it because when we're un, when we're uncomfortable, we're likely to move around and maybe make stuff better. Like I, I have a whole thing on that 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 probably bears another um, another talk sometime. But anyway, it it works better if we're uncomfortable. It, it, it works less well when we're just, you know, happy to sit around like. Like a cat, right? Um, so. And, you know, sitting around like a cat works great for cats. What it doesn't work great for what what it doesn't work great for as humans because uh, we're not we don't have the capacities of cats we have the capacities of humans right cats are better at a lot of stuff than we are um and so we need these other capacities and they kind of mean that we don't get to just sit around right so jung on the other hand, has this other flavor, right? It's 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 a it's a kind of broad, as I was saying when we were sitting, kind of receptive awareness that's not loaded up with um, emotional narration, uh, you know, um, uh, self construction, rumination. And all the rest of that sort of thing. It's mostly it's mostly just there. Well, it has two modes. There's, there's two sub modes, right? One is just completely taking in the world, right? And we were we we're trying a little bit of, of that while we were sitting, right? Just sensing, noticing the 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 sort of 
chatter and 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 arising and passing away of thoughts in the mind the and the kind of overall texture and flavor of our mental activity and all that sort of thing right so that's one mode it's just broad receptive awareness right um and then the other mode the sub mode is this kind of focused awareness you notice how it works like if you sit if you sit zazen and you and you sit really quietly and you pay attention what happens is you'll notice that your mind a sensation arises into into your perception and the mind goes there does a little work and then let's go right and so there's this there's this constant give and take between focused attention and receptive attention uh, when you're when you're when you're practicing this right um, that's really smooth and seamless, right? And the, the only exception to that is with this mode of self-construction, rumination and, and you know, self-narration, right? Which when it comes up and kind of takes over, really grabs the attention, right? Um, and, and can hold it for, a relatively long time. I mean, if you if you sit zazen and you watch how this works, you can be here for a while, and then a thought will come up that really grabs a hold. You you're in this other mode for a while, and then sort of magically, and for no apparent reason, you're back and you're paying attention, right? And so it goes like that. And the the, the times on those those periods inside that cycle are like between five seconds and 25 seconds or something like that. Usually not much longer than that, but um, what, notice it for yourself because that's the, it's something to really explore, right? So you've got, you've got um, you've got Pian trading places with Joan, right? Um, over and over and over again, right? And What what Dogen, what Dogen is fundamentally saying is that that the that zazen is the gate whereby you can discover and shift the relationship between those two modes. That's what he means by dharma gate of repose and bliss. Right. Um, so. You, when you first notice that you have this other mode, it's usually a surprise, right? Like something will happen and all of a sudden you're paying attention and there, that attention has this, this flavor of non-thinking, right? Of unloaded, receptive and, and wholehearted attention, right? And the, only, the other possibility about when it shows up is if, you're, if somebody says, go in the kitchen, chop some vegetables and really pay attention to it, right? And often when, you, when you're really focused on an activity and you're giving all your energy and effort to it, it has the same effect. It's like the, the rumination and self-narration kind of settles and mostly what's going on is just the body cutting the vegetables or doing whatever it is, right? Um, riding a bike, right? Um, so that's a start for um, for what it means to that 
Zazen is the Dharma gate of repose and bliss. Um, but the, and, and, and I guess the only thing I'll add is that what happens when you, when you study the self in this way, which is what he recommends, right? Um, slowly it becomes clear that actually that other mode of, of engagement, you know, the show, right? Is actually always there. It's not, it never goes away. It's, it's just that our attention is drawn to, um, to Pian, right? Almost inevitably because we're human, right? That's, that's the only reason why. Um, cats probably don't do that, right? But, uh, but that, that's both, the, that's both the, the kind of curse and the blessing of the human condition is that, that we, we have this other mode installed in our minds. My current take on it is that it's a virus, right? Um, it's, like a, it's like a computer virus and it was installed by culture a couple hundred thousand years ago and we've, we haven't been able to uh, dump it since, right? Um, but, oh well, right? So, so that's in, at this point, that's kind of what makes us human is we've been infected with the virus of the human condition. Um, and, and, the, and the request is to use the capacities that it uses, that is speech, sociality, long range planning, um, you know, uh, uh, this, this acute sense of, of, um, of kind of, the acute capacity for self-study and so on. The, the request is to use those capacities and work with them in such a way as to make the human condition, that virus, less problematic. <laughs> um, and so that's what we're doing, right? And we're doing it by, by bringing up and and developing a relationship with this other mode of being, the, the mode of broad receptive attention and relaxed, unloaded, focused attention, right? Um, and so, but the other question is why would he say repose and bliss, right? I mean, all the old masters, no, none of, nobody spelled it out like this. They were all elliptical and kind of, poetic about it because they didn't really want to explain anything but 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 Dogen does kind of say it's about repose and bliss and so if you look at the original text there it's 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 also a really interesting thing so there are these two characters that he uses um one is is on and that one is it, it actually, it's just as obviously as a day is long, it's meant to invoke um, um, sort of domestic tranquility, right? It's got a house and it's got somebody sitting inside it and all the rest of that sort of thing, right? So, so it's just about peace and tranquility. But, but the other one, which I think is something like Le, right? It's, it's like associated with music and laughing and, and delight and, and there's even a translation of it I ran across somewhere that's fun, right? So you've got, so he, it's like you take these two 
these two words that mean pretty radically different things and you sort of glom them together and say, it's the gate to this, right? And I think that the, the message there is something like this. It's not a unitary experience, right? It has, it has different characteristics depending on the conditions of the moment. When, when, you're, when your body and mind are settled, it, it manifests as a kind of peaceful appreciation of the settled nature of the body, right? Body and mind, right? When something else is going on, when there's something surprising or, 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 or energetic going on, it manifests as kind of delight, right? And, and when, when it manifests with respect to other beings, you could argue that it's, it's unconditioned love and gratitude, right? So something like that. So that's the, that's the message of the Fukanza Zengi is that those things, those modes of being, those expressions of our underlying nature are available by sitting as long as you practice long enough and with us with it with enough sort of relaxed diligence to allow them to flower. Right? That's it. <laughs>